Today is February 11, 2013. This is Amy Begley interviewing Bobby Gibbs for the RRCA Women Pioneers of Running Oral History Project. Bobby is best known for being the first woman to run the Boston Marathon in 1966 unofficially. And she was also the three-time winner of Boston from 1966 to 1968 before women were ever allowed to run Boston. However, in 1996, they awarded her the official winner, recognizing her accomplishments in the Boston Marathon. Hello, Bobby. Hi there. First, hello. So being the first woman to run Boston, it's probably definitely been a fun journey for you over the years. Um, yeah. Being recognized as the first woman to run Boston, the kind of the holy grail of all the marathons. Um, yeah. But you probably didn't start running in 1966. What age did you start running or, or see running as a sport? Well, um, I I had never heard about the Boston Marathon, and um, I I just loved to run. I I loved to run in the woods with my dog, and uh, and uh, uh, <clears throat> just a second. Okay, yeah, no, I love to run in the woods with my dog, <laughs> and I'd run cross-country. And a friend, uh, the father of one of my high school friends um, said, why don't you go out and watch the Boston Marathon since you love it so much. So it was 1964, I went out with my dad and first saw the Boston Marathon, and I just fell in love with it. Um, I wasn't thinking about men or women or anything. In fact, I didn't know women weren't allowed to run. In those days, it was a men's division race. And there was no women's division race. And, in fact, women were not allowed to run more than a mile and a half competitively under the rules of the AAU. And um, so I didn't know anything about the world of sports or... um, or track and field, or you didn't really have track and field for women. I just loved to run, and I saw these guys running. And to me, the Boston Marathon was more of a, like a celebration of life. Um, I didn't, I didn't even see it so much as an athletic event. It was just a celebration of life every spring. And I thought, well, the guys get together in Hopkinton and run to Boston. And there wasn't really any running movement. Um, hardly any men ran. I think the race was only about, you know, somewhere about 450 men. And that was the only race, as far as I knew about, in in the country. And uh, although now I found out there was another race or a couple other races, but this was certainly the only major city marathon. There wasn't, New York Marathon didn't exist, Chicago, there was nothing. There was no running movement. Hardly anyone ran, and for a woman to run in public was actually thought to be improper. I mean, it was way outside the social norm for a grown woman to be running. God forbid that she should sweat. So it was a completely different era. It was a completely different mindset. I mean, women were expected to stay home and, you know, clean house and raise the kids, and the men went out to work, and it was almost impossible for a woman to get into medical school or law school or Women were not expected to have careers. If they were lucky enough to go to college, they were expected to get married right after college, and that was their life. And so I had been chasing at this kind of restrictions ever since I was an adolescent. And I began to see what the, 
the rules of the game were. Because I thought, well, I have a mind. I mean, I I have a body. I want to I want to be a whole person. And um, so I just fell in love with it. And I didn't know how to train. Um, there weren't any running books, as far as I knew. There were no women's running clothes. I ran in nurses' shoes because I had worked as a nurse's aide. That was my first job out of high school, and I had these big heavy school uh, shoes, but they were about the only woman's shoe that was sturdy enough to actually run in. So I ran in nurse's shoes and uh, a tank top bathing suit under my clothes because they had nothing like jog bras or any of that stuff they have now. And I just started running and I'd go out and run longer and I tried to run longer and longer distances. And, um, and gradually work up. I didn't know if I could do it or not. I was really going into the unknown. Um, so that's that's kind of how I started. But, you know, people today don't realize how different it was. And women particularly don't understand that, you know, nobody thought a woman could actually run 26.2 miles. It was just physically impossible. Well, and I was reading the... The Boston Marathon in 1966 was one of your first races that you ever ran? Yeah, it was my first race ever of any distance. I mean, I there weren't any races. I mean, there, I mean there were races for women that were up to a mile and a half. Um, that was all that the uh, Amateur Athletic Union allowed. And... Um, and I wasn't I wasn't in the world of sports. I was, if I had been in the world of sports, I would have learned um, that women were not able to run more than a mile and a half, and I and I never would have tried. But because I was outside the world of sports, I was just running for the sheer love of it and the challenge of it. Once I heard twenty six point two miles, wow! I don't even know. I mean, could I do that? Am I going to die of a heart attack or a stroke or you know? It was a challenge, and um, if I had been in the world of sports, I never would have been allowed to take on that challenge because uh, even the women didn't know they could run distance like that, and the women coaches um, wouldn't let their girls run more than a mile and a half. And as I said, the Boston Marathon in those days was just a men's division race. There was no women's division race. So when you say, you know, you, to say it was unofficial, um, is a bit of a problem because when you say, oh, I ran unofficially, it sounds like a sort of derogatory term when, in fact, there was no way that a woman could run any marathon anywhere in the world until, well, at least in the United States until 1972, the first Boston Marathon uh, Women's Division opened up. So... Maybe you should just strike that unofficially because it's it's sort of a misnomer. I didn't run unofficially, you know. Thank it you. sounds like, you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. That it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's like a it's like a put down. Like, oh, <laughs> she was unofficial, so she didn't count. When in fact, it um, you know, it was sort of a pivotal pivotal event in raising consciousness about women because no one thought a woman could run. And when I ran 26, the whole 26.2 miles, then everybody um, could see a woman could run. And it was a conscious-changing event for both women and men. 
And um, to just to dismiss it as sort of, oh, well, she was an unofficial runner, misses the whole point. Yeah, that, that's definitely true because there was nothing unofficial about what you did. You started, you ran, you competed in things that, you know, in, in nurses' shoes of all things. There weren't any women's apparel or any women's shoes. And, and you ran yeah. 321 as a 23-year-old in that first marathon. Yeah. Uh, yeah, a lot of people—that's amazing feat to do. That wasn't even my, one of my best runs. I mean, it was—you um, know—if I had a coach and I knew what I was doing, because I had taken a bus. Um, when it, way it happened was I had gone to California in um, January of 1966, and then I wrote for my application blank. Um, in February of 1966, and um, and then uh, not knowing that women weren't allowed, not knowing, you know, anything about the racing world, really. And then I got a letter back from Will Coney, and he said, women are not allowed to run in marathons. We can't take the medical liability. Women aren't allowed to run more than one and a half miles competitively. And he said they're not physiologically able to run those distances, and that's what everybody thought. And uh, by this, by that time, I had only trained for two years to run the race. And so I read this letter, and it says, this is one more thing. That, well, you can't do something because you're a member of a certain class of people, in this case, women. Thank you. So you trained for two years for this, and you said you didn't have a coach. You just trained on your own. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't have a coach. Uh, did you ever get a coach after that first marathon, or did you? No, you I, never do had, I never had a coach. I never, and I've always been curious as to um, what I could have done if I had had a coach, because I I knew nothing. The way I trained for the Boston Marathon was very interesting. I well, as I said, first of all, I was tra- I was living in Winchester, Massachusetts, and uh, my boyfriend would drive me on his motorcycle, uh, you know, two miles and drop me off, and I'd run back to the house, three miles and then five miles and so forth, and I was working up that way. And then um, in in the summer of 1964, I took a trip across the country in a Volkswagen bus with my Malamute puppy, and that's where I did a huge amount of training because um, during the days I'd run, wherever I was, I'd just run and run and run and um, across Massachusetts and out across Ohio. So you just pretty much went by feel on on training and just tried to run farther and farther each time. That's... um... That's a that's, that's pretty interesting, and being and being able to run that fast, just just kind of doing what you what you kind of instinctively thought was was good for training. Yeah, I didn't know anything about interval running or anything, but but as I got further and further west, at night I camped out, which was very unusual for a woman, a woman alone to camp out. Well, I had my Malamute puppy with me, but at night I'd camp out. And I'd, I'd sleep out under the stars. And it was almost, it was more than a training trip. It was also like a spiritual journey. I was looking for something 
And in fact, I've just written a book called Wind in the Fire, and it's being published by the Harvard Bookstore, and it tells the whole story of it's sort of a sp- spiritual journey. I was looking for something like, the world has always amazed me, like, what is the world doing here? What's all this existence? It always seemed so beautiful and mysterious. And, of course, in school I learned about atoms and molecules and photons. And I think, well, you know, why why would all these atoms and photons and molecules be here? You know, what created this? And, you know, if there's a God, what created God? And how, you know, what, why isn't it just a big empty void? I mean, who would bother with all this? What? What earthly reason? And so existence to me had always been somewhat of a miracle, a beautiful miracle. And that's one of the reasons I ran in the woods was I was getting closer, closer to that miracle. And I think about what is life, really? What is life? And um, and so I was, I was searching for that experience as I went west. It was kind of a journey into the wilderness. And um, the further west I got, the I mean, the more insights I had, the things came to me as I ran through the woods and across the plains. And I was just in love with the earth, and I was in love with the sky, and I was in love with the universe at night and the stars. And um, and this was my way of expressing it. It was to to run and to sort of glory in this incredible creation and to marvel and wonder at it and and then I got out across the Mississippi River and that was that was amazing to watch that huge river kind of snaking under the bridge as I chunked across in Missouri and went out across the plains and I got out to Nevada and I was running and by then I was getting very strong and I'd see I'd stand on a ridge of mountains and I'd look out across a wide huge valley and I'd see some pale blue mountains on the horizon. I'd say, well, I'm going to see if I can get to the top of those mountains. So I'd head off across the plain with Moot, my Malamut, and we'd run. I mean, sometimes I'd run half a day, get to the top of the mountains, and then I'd stand and look back <laughs> from where I came, and then I'd run back again. And um, so that was my training. I mean, I was, I don't know, I didn't have a way of measuring the distance at that point, but it was pretty far. And um, and then at night I'd sleep out, and I mean there were stars, like more stars than I'd ever seen out there, and I just blew me away the beauty and mystery of this thing. And here it was like standing right in the universe. There's nothing between you and the furthest reaches of the universe. It's just you there standing on this earth, which is you know flying through space and uh, in all these stars, and it was so, so beautiful. And then, you know, then I kept on running all the way to California and ended up in San Francisco. And the last night of my journey, I uh, slept out on um, Stinson Beach, which is north, a little bit north of San Francisco, across the Golden Gate Bridge. And when, when I crossed the Golden Gate Bridge, there were tears Rained down my eyes because it was so beautiful. The sun sparkling on the Pacific Ocean, and I had never seen the Pacific Ocean before. And and I went and um, was looking for a place to camp for the night. And I found Stinson Beach and camped out there for the night. And that was 
that was like the core of my training. And and then um, then I went home from there. I had to go back to start school again in the fall, of course. So I started school in '64. Uh, I was going to um, Tufts University School of Special Studies, and I was studying physics and biology and mathematics. And then um, I was going to the Museum of Fine Arts School, studying sculpture and drawing and and um, and so then I was going to run that that April. I was in great shape. I was going to run that April in 1965, but I fell and I sprained both of my ankles just a little, few weeks before the marathon. And so I I had a whole another year. I had to wait to run it. So the next year I just kept running. I kept up my training. I didn't go on any long trips, but I lived in Winchester with my parents and I train in the cells and I just run and run and run keeping up that base level training that I had done uh, over the summer and then in the fall of 1965 I was saying well gee you know I don't really know how far I'm running or how fast or anything I'm just going out and running and so I, I said well I'm going to go up and run the, in Vermont Vermont Woodstock, Vermont, there's a 100-mile horseback competition every September. And I had watched the horses run for many years when I was a kid. And I said, well, now I'm going to go up there and see if I can run the 100-mile, or at least 26.2 miles is 100 miles. So at least I'll have some sort of measured distance. And so I took a bus up to Woodstock, and um, and I ran um, 40 miles the first day with the horses, and then I ran 25 miles the second day, and then my knees were hurting, and I thought, well, I don't want to injure myself. I mean, I didn't know if I would injure myself running more, so I said, I'd better just pull up, you know, 65 miles in two days. I said, I guess I can, I guess I'm now ready to run the Boston Marathon. And, but that was in the fall, and then, um, and then in the winter I moved out to California because I married. Actually, it was a guy who had first introduced me to cross country running that I had met at Tufts University, and he and I had used, had gone running um, around Greater Boston together. He he ran five miles cross country. And um, he had asked me to marry him. He was in the Navy, and, of course, the Vietnam War was going on, and he was stationed in San Diego. And so I flew out to San Diego, and, and we got married. But I continued my training in San Diego, um, and then I knew, I met um, Bill Gukin, who was with the San Diego track and field. And um, he was the one who said you had to have a number to run the Boston Marathon, so that was when I wrote to Wilconi in February asking for a number and got that reply back that women weren't physiologically able to run, and I was angry and hurt and crushed, and then I realized that it was more important than ever for me to run because now I was making a social statement, and I knew that if I could prove that women could do this, that was thought impossible, that it would open up the question of what else can women do that was thought impossible. 
And so that, at that point, it became a social statement when I decided to run. I could have just said, oh, well, too bad, shucks, you know, uh, I'm not going to be able to run. But instead, I said, all the more reason to run because now I have something to prove. But it was a catch-22, you know, double bind, because how can you prove you can do something if you're not allowed to do it? That was the problem. And... um so I, you know, I wasn't sure just how I was going to do this. But um, uh, uh, three days before the race, I got on a bus. I took a bus from San Diego to Boston, arrived the day before the marathon, if you can believe this. And my parents thought I had gone nuts. My father actually thought I was delusional and that I was, I somehow I thought I was going to run the Boston Marathon. He was very angry and upset, and um, he he had to go to a sailing regatta that morning, so he kind of stormed out of the house. And my mother, who had always been trying to get me to sort of be a lady and stop running and, you know, get married and play the role that she had had to play, which she was very unhappy playing, which I had vowed, I'm, you know, if this is what women have to do, I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to go to the woods and live in the woods or something. I'm not going to, I'm just not going to do this. And um, finally, for the first time, she was on my side, and she, and I convinced her to drive me to Hopkinton. Because I said, you know, this, this is going to help to set women free. But they're going to see that women can do this thing, and it's going to just explode the whole myth. They're not going to be able to say women can't run marathons or women can't be off, you know, they can't go to medical school or do anything. They're going to have to re-examine all those old myths. And so um, she drove me to Hopkinton and brought me off. And then she left because she had to go to this sailing regatta with my dad. And um, now I was wearing my brother's Bermuda shorts and a new pair of running shoes. Bill, Bill Lucan had said, why don't you wear boys? And she said, I had never thought of that. So I got before I got on the bus, I bought a pair of new boys running shoes, not realizing you're supposed to break them in. And um, so, so I put on my new boys running shoes, my brother's Bermuda shorts, and, of course, my tank top bathing suit underneath, and a blue hooded sweatshirt over it because I knew if they saw I was a woman, they would throw me. I didn't know what they would do. I thought they might arrest me. I didn't know what I was getting. I was really going into the unknown. But I knew I knew, knew that I was doing something that I was forbidden to do. I wasn't supposed to be doing this. And I'm a fairly shy person. So I got there, and the crowds were milling around. And then suddenly I kind of realized, oh, my God, people are going to be watching this. And, um, and I... Um, so I sort of trotted around downtown Huffington, trying to get the lay of the land, figure out, you know, how 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 am I going to get into this thing without being arrested or or uh, thrown out? And I could see there was a pen, and the men were gathering in the pen, the men runners. And I said, well, I can't go in the pen because they will see I'm a woman and they're going to stop me. So I found a little hollow with some bushes as near to the start as I could get. And then I went off, and I, I thought you had to warm up. So I went off, and I ran 
two or three miles before the race to warm up. And then, oh, I have to mention that my mother had given me a huge roast beef supper and apple pie the night before, and I thought you had to eat a lot of protein to be strong. And I hadn't eaten much on the bus. I had I had only basically chili, bus station chili and a bag of apples that I had eaten. So I was hungry, so I ate a huge roast beef dinner and apple pie, and um, which was kind of sitting uneasily in my stomach at this point. And so I found this, I found this little hollow, and then I crouched there and waited, and the gun went off, and um, the runners left, and I waited till about half the pack had gone by, and then I jumped into the middle of the pack with with the hood up over my hair, and I. And I wasn't sure how the men runners were going to receive me as a woman or the spectators. And so um, so I was running along trying to figure out what to do next. And I could hear the guys behind me talking. And they say, is that a girl? Is that a girl who was studying my anatomy? From I have to admit, it was very quick. I mean, within minutes, within minutes, they had figured out that I was a girl. And so I... I said, oh, God, this is the moment, you know. They could just shoulder me out of this thing. And so I turned around and smiled. I knew I had to keep it upbeat. And so I turned around and smiled. And the guy said, it is a girl. And uh, and so we were running along. And the, the guys were really friendly. And, oh, gosh, I wish my wife would run. I wish my girlfriend would run. They wanted to share their love of running with the women in their lives. And women just didn't run in those days. They didn't. They didn't think they could. Nobody thought they could. And so so the guys were really friendly. And then I said, well, I'm getting really hot in this sweatshirt because it was a really hot day. And I said, but I'm afraid if I take it off, they'll see I'm a woman and throw me out. And then the guys said, we won't let them throw you out. It's a free road. So um, the guys are really supportive. And this is another thing I wanted to do, this stupid war between the sexes, you know, I wanted to end the war between the sexes and show that men and women could do this this thing together. And um, so the guys uh, were really supportive. So I took off the blue hooded sweatshirt, and then everybody could see I was a woman. And then, again, I didn't know, you know, when you do something this far outside the social norms, people can actually be hostile. And so I was waiting for the reaction of the crowd, and there was this, dead silence, like, oh, my God. Then, oh, somebody said, oh, it's a girl. And then one guy started to clap and go, atta go, girly. And then the women started to scream. And it was just, oh, then the reporters realized there was a woman running. And it was history in the making here. And so the uh, reporters started um, following my progress. It was being broadcast on a local radio station. There was a girl in the race, and now she's in Framingham and so forth. Along the way, so by the time I got to Wellesley, Wellesley is a private girls' college about halfway um, through the marathon. And when I, by the time I got to Wellesley, all the women knew I was coming, and they were waiting for me, looking for me. And in those days, they had what they called a shriek tunnel, what the guys called the tunnel of love, and it was. The girls would stand facing each other in a long column and put their hands up over to make sort of an archway, and the runners all had to pass through this tunnel. 
And so when the girls, the women saw that I was coming, they, I mean, they shrieked and screamed louder than they they had been. And over on one side is one woman. She's going, Ave Maria, Ave Maria. It's like women knew that things were never going to be the same again after this. And um, but I had this real weight of responsibility on my shoulders because I knew that if I failed to finish that I would set women back about another 50 years. So I was really conserving my energy and running way under my speed that I would ordinarily have run. I was really holding back because I knew I had to save a lot for the end. Um, And so I was running along. And then I could hear the guys talking about Heartbreak Hill. Heartbreak Hill, that's a killer. And I go, oh, God, what's Heartbreak Hill? And so um, I got to Heartbreak Hill and uh, and I had to go up Heartbreak Hill, and then it sort of levels out. And so, well, that wasn't bad. That was just a little hill. And then, whoops, no, it's going up again. And whoops, no, it's going up again. And finally get to the top. And it wasn't, I mean, compared to the mountains I had been running on, it was just a little hill. So I was really well hill trained. But coming as it does in the last part of the race, what killed me was coming down the other side. It was easy going up, but coming down the other side, the front of my legs was starting to ache because it's a net downhill race, as you know, from Hoppington. And plus, my new boy's running shoes was, I had horrible blisters. I mean, they were bleeding, and uh, I mean, my feet were killing me because of the new shoes. Plus, I didn't know you were supposed to drink water, so I hadn't had any water for the entire race. And I was severely dehydrated, and I had this huge roast beef dinner bouncing around in my stomach like a cannonball. So, and I had just taken a three-day bus trip. I said, I couldn't have done any more worse things for running than, than I did. Because, as I said, I didn't know what I was doing. And anyway, so there I am, and my teeth are getting tired. And now I find out that, you know, people take aspirin and things like that when they run, and I didn't. I didn't know anything about aspirin. I didn't take aspirin. Never did. Never did. Never have taken aspirin ever. And um, so, so there I was coming down Heartbreak Hill. My feet really started to kill me. And I gather, although I didn't have a watch, and figured this out later that I had been running a sub three three hour marathon. Um, up until the very last few miles of the marathon. And then the combination of dehydration and blisters and uh, roast beef, uh, not to mention the bus ride, kind of I, my pace dropped way off. I was just tiptoeing along. I mean, it was so excruciating. It was like running on tacks, on nails. It was so painful. I was just tiptoeing along. And I thought, oh, God, you know. Uh, everybody's going to be gone by the time they get to the finish line. But the spectators were still there, still clapping and cheering and everything. And um, then I got to Hereford Street, and everybody's hanging out of the windows, screaming and yelling, drinking beer. And then you make that left turn onto Boylston Street. And, wow, all the crowds were still there. The bleachers were there. The music was going, the press was going crazy. They were following me along taking pictures, and um, and I ran, and I ran across the finish line, 
and they told me it was three hours and 20 minutes. I think somebody later figured out my, what my time must have been by looking at the nearest runners. I don't, I'm not sure how they did that, but anyway, um, it turned out I finished, I think it was about 126, ahead of two-thirds of the men runners. It blew everybody's mind. They were just screaming and yelling, and the governor of Massachusetts came down and shook my hand afterwards, and then the press, um, you know, got a hold of me. Uh, oh, and my friends, my running friends, my, um, wanted me to come for the post-marathon stew with them, but I got to the door, and they said, sorry, no women allowed. So, And the men really felt bad because here I'd run the whole race stride for stride with the men, um, and they wouldn't let me in to have the stew. And then, anyway, then the reporters all came around. They wanted to know who I was and why I had run. And so they'd never been interviewed by reporters before. That was kind of fun, actually. And um, then finally um, I took a taxi home, I got to my street in Winchester, and there were cars everywhere. All been down the street, pulled up on the sidewalk, and I said, gee, somebody must be having a party or something. And I got to my house, and like all, it was full of people. It was full of um, newspaper reporters. And my poor parents were <laughs> standing in the middle of all this, and their friends were all calling on the phone and congratulating them on their daughter. And the reporters were there, and they were looking completely confused, like, what has this daughter of ours done now? And um, so, um, but they were very proud of me, and I put my arm around my dad, and and, uh, he's saying things like, oh, yeah, we knew she could do it, and sort of thing, but completely different than what he'd been saying in the morning. And I said, yeah, Dad, it was those good legs. I have, I, I do have his legs, actually. He's very strong was a very strong um, athletic guy in his day. And uh, in the next day, it was front-page headlines. I mean, not just on the back on the sports page. It was front-page headlines and um, went out all over the world that a woman had run a, uh, run a marathon, which they, and nobody thought was possible. And even, even afterwards, people couldn't believe it. And... Um, Anyway, so that was that was 1966, and then in 19, um, then I went back out to California, and I I had started college at the University of California um, in in uh, La Jolla at that point, and I was going to a pre med pre med program there, and. Um, so I figured as long as anyone was saying they still couldn't believe a woman could run, that I was going to have to come back and run the next year. So I already knew I was going to run the next year at that point. And Bill Gookin tells a funny story. He he and his brother, his brother Ed Gookin, just couldn't believe that a woman had run a marathon. He said, I can't believe a woman could physically do something like that. And Bill, who had run with me, said, uh, yeah, well, you got to run with Bobby Gibb, and then you'll um, then you'll believe it. And so they uh, they and a bunch of their friends invited me to run out to Black Mountain. I didn't I didn't realize that it didn't believe that I had run the Boston Marathon. So we started out we we ran to Black Mountain, 
which is about 10 miles from Del Mar, and we ran up to the top. Bill and I ran up to the top of the mountain, and Ed and his friends were lagging behind, and then Bill and I came running down the mountain, and we ran all the way back to Del Mar, and we're sitting there cooling our heels, and uh, Bill says, oh, that's the day when Ed became a true believer. <laughs> and so, but that was the general attitude was, I can't believe it. I can't believe that a woman actually did this thing. So, so the next year I was taking a pretty heavy load of courses, as you can imagine, calculus and biology and organic chemistry and all this heavy stuff for medical school. And so my, I didn't train that much, but I, I would go up and run out up and down the beach. I was kind of coasting on my training from the year before, but I knew I had to, to run. And, and so that April, I actually flew back. And I had some kind of flu. I had the flu, and so I arrived in Winchester, and all the reporters were calling the house and saying, oh, is she going to run this year? Is she going to re- run this year? And my parents said, oh, well, she's here, but she's sick. She doesn't know if she's going to be able to run or not. And so everybody knew there was going to be a, a woman running in 1967. And that year, my parents, actually both of them, drove me to Hopkinton in the and the press was interviewing me and stuff at the beginning of the run. That year, I actually stood at the starting line, right, uh, openly, right uh, next to the pen. Um, I didn't have to hide or anything. And again, the starting gun went off. Again, I waited till half the pack left, and and then I started to run. And But this year, I was sick. I had the flu. I was not well, and it was a rainy, cold year. And um, I got in a partway through the marathon. I developed some kind of, some kind of, um, I guess, a lung. I I had a congestion in my lungs, and I couldn't breathe. And I laid, I couldn't breathe, so I lay down on somebody's lawn. I remember that wet, cold lawn. And uh, they were trying to call the hospital and call my father and everything. And I didn't think it was going to be able to run the marathon. And then all of a sudden, the cramp let go. I was probably there for 10 or 15 minutes. Tramp left go, and much to everybody's amazement, I sprung up off the grass and ran the rest of the way to Boston. And that was um, 1967. And again, there was no women's division race. It was just a men's division race. And, of course, the basic law of force is that women cannot run in men's division races any more than men can run in women's division races. So um, Will Coney was, again, he was very angry. And uh, there was another woman woman runner that year, and she had gotten an illegal number in the men's division race, um, which, of course, women uh, aren't allowed to do. Um, in fact, the women were running in the second women's division race that was uh, yet to be sanctioned women's division race. And um, so Rukoni was very young, and he said, well, if women want to run the marathon, why don't they organize a marathon and run it, run, uh, you know, a women's division marathon? And uh, the only problem with that is the AEU rules wouldn't uh, wouldn't allow women to run more than a mile and a half. So before you could have a women's division marathon, you had to get those AAU rules changed in. I credit Nina Kusick, um, and there was a guy that was helping her. I can't remember his name. He was a very well-known man, 
it wasn't just men against women. This guy, her friend, was very instrumental in um, getting that changed. She was the one who um, went to the meetings and and submitted the petitions and really worked really hard behind the scenes. She's a wonderful person, and she um, she and a lot of other people, I mean, dozens of people worked on this to finally get the rules changed. But anyway, this was still 67, and so the two of us women were running in the women's division, Boston Marathon, which was not yet sanctioned, and uh, the other woman finished about an hour behind me. And again, it, this year was not front-page headlines. Everybody already knew that a woman had run the year before and that women could run. In fact, more and more women were running. And then the next year, I came back again uh, in, um, what was it, 1968. And again, I hadn't really trained because now I was really in the thick of a very difficult course. I was taking, my, I had a math minor and I was taking abstract algebra and uh, biochemistry, and uh, I was working very hard, staying up late, drinking a lot of coffee, and uh, squeezing the running in between times, so it was not really a coherent program of training. I was just coasting, but I thought, well, you know, I'm, this will be it. I'm going to run this thing three times, and then there'll be absolutely no question about it. And in fact, there wasn't any question even after the second year. And so, uh, again, I came back, I flew back and and ran again that year. And it was another hot year, and I had made the mistake of wearing a sweater. So I was very, very, very hot. And again, I didn't know you're supposed to drink water, so I was very dehydrated. If I ever had a coach or even a book or any any idea how you're supposed to run these things. You know, I've always wondered what I could have done if I had really had the slightest idea how to do this thing right with a coach or a book or anything to tell me. You're supposed to drink water if you're running a marathon, especially on a hot day. And um, still hadn't solved the shoe problem. Um, I'm still running in um, boys, boys' shoes. You there? Yep, I'm here. Yep. Oh yeah, and, and but this so, time did you break the shoes in? Did you break the shoes in this year? I broke, yeah, I I didn't have the bad blisters, but I I was definitely dehydrated, and I was totally undertrained, way undertrained. So, but I still finished. I I forget what it was. It was three hours and a and a half. It was about three hours and a half, which wasn't a bad time considering I hadn't really trained. And um. Anyway, that was it. That was the three runs, and then I figured, well, I've done my part. Oh, that's that third year, by the way, there were five women running. Again, we were all running in the women's division, Boston Marathon, which hadn't been sanctioned yet, and there were five women running. I think you have some of them on your list, uh, Marjorie Fish, for example. Um, anyway, so that, and that was it, and so that, and I said, okay, now I have to really think about there was no money involved. You know, I didn't do it for money. Or I hadn't, didn't really even do it for fame or anything. I just did it to because I saw something was wrong, and I saw this is a way of making it right, and um, this is a way I could be given an opportunity to help women um, overturn all the prejudices. 
And after that, I said, well, you know, I have to really buckle down to business. I've got to get into medical school. I've got to figure out what I want to do and how I'm going to earn money. I, I really don't have the time to keep running these marathons. So that was the last one I ran for 20 years. I didn't run again. I didn't run the Boston Marathon until um, uh, I think it was 20, my 20th anniversary, um, uh, 20 years later. So that that was basically it. And um, did you did you race any other races, or were you just solely focused on on school after after the 1968 Boston? Um, no, that was it. I think I think when I was training for the um, nine, oh yeah, when I was training for the 1986 marathon. I'm trying to remember, did I run before that? I ran the New York Marathon. I think it was 1985 to qualify for Boston. And um, I ran the Foxtrot Marathon. And I would have run a marathon out in San Diego. I don't remember. Um, Just to get into shape. um, So I ran the New York Marathon. That was a fun marathon. That was actually my fastest time. That was three hours and 19 minutes. But that was frustrating because it was so crowded that there were always people right jammed in front of me, right jammed behind me, right jammed on each side. So I couldn't, I had seated myself too far back and I couldn't ever get my stride. I could never get my stride. So I <laughs> went the whole marathon, you know, running way under my pace. But it was three three hours and 19 minutes. I think. 20 years later, I just drop in with a, you know, a few months of training and run. 319, and I'm thinking, well, I just wish I had had a coach. I, I would have loved to have spent a couple of years really, you know, seeing what I could do as an athlete. But truth to know, women's running didn't really take off until the 70s and the 80s. And by that time, I was um, I had applied I applied to, to medical school. I went for my interviews and. Um, the first interview I went on, he said, you're too pretty to go to medical school. You'll upset the boys in the lab. And um, we have to save the places in medical school for the the men who are actually going to practice medicine. You're obviously going to get married and have kids. So uh, it was very hard to get into medical school, and it was very hard to get into the sciences, the Ph.D. science program, if you were a woman back then. That that was in 1969. And so I didn't know what to do, but um, finally I ended up going to law school. And um, so I moved back to Boston. I remarried, moved back to Boston, and I went to law school at night. And and during the day I worked uh, at MIT with uh, Professor Jerry Lesson because I loved neuroscience. I really wanted to go into neuroscience, but as I say, it was very hard for women to get in in those days. And and I, but I knew I wanted children, and I wanted a family. And I was afraid if I got into the sciences, I wouldn't be able to um, spend the kind of time I wanted to spend being a mom. But with something like law, if I had my own practice, I could kind of set my own hours and my own time. And so I said, well, I'll go to law school. My grandfather had been a lawyer. I'll go to law school, which was e- easy for me. Well, after all that science, law school was easy and fun. It was fun. I like law. 
And so that's what I did. And then I practiced law for 18 years, um, mostly patent law and um, and real estate law. And and then um, when my well, my next marathon was in 2001. Um, oh, no, I take that back. My next marathon was, was did I run in 1996? I can't remember uh, if I ran that. I can't, yeah, it says, I can't it says, um, it says you ran the 86, the 96, and the 2001, at least what I found. Yeah, yeah, that's it, that's it. Okay, so I did run. I ran the 96, and that was the 100th anniversary of Austin Marathon, and that's when mm-hmm. they gave me the medal. And uh, by what, I hadn't really trained for that. That was just kind of a fun run. And then I ran in 2001, well, one of my dear, dear friends came down with Lou Gehrig's disease. So I ran with a group of people that were running to raise money for the lab. And we actually raised over $100,000. But I I came down with um, a really bad case of bronchitis a couple of weeks before the race. And um, I was running a fever. I mean, it was I, I was really sick. But I had been on television, and there had been all this buildup about, you know, I was running for Lou Gehrig's disease, the Angel Fund, and I know I couldn't not run, but I was really sick. I think I, I'm not, I don't know if I had a fever the day I ran or not, but it was, it, um, my friend Ed Rice was running with me. He also was running for the same group that was we raising money for this. And well, my best friend had, had come down with it, so we were raising money for the lab. So um, I ran that race, but I was really sick. It took me, oh, it took me over six hours by the time I finished this. I got to Heartbreak Hill. I actually got to the top of Heartbreak Hill, and I was so sick I couldn't breathe. And Ed was freezing cold because it was a cold day. with was strong headwind. I said, Ed, you're freezing. Why don't you, you please go ahead? I'm going to get on the medical bus. You know, I just can't, uh, you know, I'm dying here. I can't. I can't even breathe. So I got on the medical bus, and the medical bus went all the way back to Wellesley. It, I, don't know, I was probably on the medical bus for, I don't know, half an hour or so. And then it turned around and came back, and we were going up over the top of Heartbreak Hill. And by that time, the cramp had gone, and I could breathe again. And I said, stop the bus, stop the bus. I want to get off. I'm going to run the rest of this race. So I could, so uh, they, they um, stopped the bus, and this this young woman from Harvard named Rebecca Wolf, she could see the condition I was in, and she she got off. She was just in jeans. I mean, she wasn't really thinking about running. She'd been training for a race down in Texas, but she'd been helping with the water stations. And so she got off the bus with me, and um, we ran all the way, all the rest of the way. So I actually finished that race. I ran all the way to Boston and finished it. By the time I got there, the clock had stopped, it was all dark, and the street sweepers were sweeping the race. I'd never seen this end of the race before, sweeping all the cups off the feet. And, and we turned that last corner around Hereford Street, and uh, and two huge street sweepers started up and came down the road with us on either side. I said, what an inglorious end. I said, you know, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. I said, well, the first shall be last, and I was like, I came over the finish line. We were cracking up. We were laughing so hard. <laughs> it was so funny to finish with these street sweepers. 
and then and then I went to the award ceremony, and um, that was the last marathon I ran. And it took me about three months to recover from the from the um, bronchitis because I was afraid I had permanently damaged my lungs. But anyway, that was my last marathon. But I still run. I run. I love to run. I mean, I run an hour a day. And um, and as I say, I, you know, I had decided, okay, that was the last. That was a fitting last run for the first woman to be last. And I said that there's a certain irony to that. And um, but now I'm feeling so good these days. After my dad died, I really I went. I had a horrible time. I couldn't run. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't focus on my work. I couldn't look at the TV screen. I was just in a post-traumatic stress mode, and I couldn't. I couldn't run. I was having I was heart irregularities, and um, my usual way to run off stress and grief is to run, and I couldn't run. And so, I mean, I just. It took me two years to recover from my dad's death, and even then, I mean, I'm still recovering now, but. At some point, I began to be able to run again. I didn't think I was ever going to run again. And um, I started to run. I mean, I could just run a few thousand feet very slowly. And, you know, my heart rate would go way off. Um, and then I said, oh, but can't do that. Back it down a little bit. And so then gradually, 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 I've been able to come back. And, oh, I forgot, I did break my ankle in there somewhere. And so there was a whole year of broken ankle that I was recovering from. But anyway, so, but recently I'm coming back and I'm able to run um, longer distances and longer distances. still slow. It's still very slow, but at least I'm running. And I'm out there and, you know, the world is whirling by and I'm feeling happy and joyful. And I'm thinking, boy, you know, if I continue to recover... Maybe, just maybe, maybe, maybe I might be able to run that 50th. You know, one last run for the old racehorse. Uh, anyway, that's what I'm thinking now. So that's that's my marathon history, pretty much. That's amazing. Um, when when you did the the cross country trip and you were running and, and when you were training for the other marathons, um, did you ever? Uh, get yelled at? Did people ever ask you what you were doing? Did you know, how did how did people treat you when they saw you running? Oh, that's a good question. Well, it was mixed. I mean, most people thought I was very odd. I mean, really peculiar. Really, oh, there's that kid girl. You know, she's a little peculiar out there running by herself. But a lot, a surprising number of people said, "You are beautiful when you run. You you look like a gazelle." And one one person stopped me and said, you know, I go down to pick up my husband at the bus stop, and I I drive by, this is in Winchester, I, buy, I drive by the river, there's a river there, and along I, and I would run back from Tufts along the river every night at a certain time, and at the time she was going, she said, you know, you look like a wild animal running. I just, she said, I, I love to watch you running, and it's amazing how many people have said that. I don't know what I look like when I'm running. I mean, to me, it feels wonderful. It feels like I'm just floating. I feel like a bird flying, you know, just I'm happy. 
somehow, like, ah, oh, this is me. This is me running along. I mean, I could spend my life running. And um, But a lot of people said they loved to watch me run. I'm not sure just why, but that that was one of the big reactions. Um, and I wanted to get your thoughts on all the attention that, that Catherine's sister got when she ran the 1967 marathon because a lot of people view her as the first one to run the marathon, even though you had run it a year earlier and you actually beat her by an hour in the 67 marathon. Um, what were your thoughts on on just the well, different publicity that she got? Well, I'll tell you, um, at the time, in 19... 19- 67. She did not get a huge amount of publicity, um, contrary to popular opinion. Um, it was on the sports page. It was a picture of her finishing with an illegal number, and there was a picture of me running in my leotards, and it said things like, you know, um, babes, bug, marathon bosses, and it was sort of a play up on how, you know, women, the, the women... Isn't this isn't this kind of silly? These women running the marathon, and then um, of course in those days, um, women had, the men had to take a physical exam before the race. Mm-hmm. And I have a friend. In fact, he is uh, he's a coach at, for the uh, Wellesley Striders right now. In fact, um, a few months ago I was down there. Um, they wanted me to speak, and I had a book signing down there with the Wellesley Striders. A really nice guy, and he actually had run the uh, 1966, I think the 1967 marathon. He said in those days, uh, the guys, in order to get their number, they had to go through a medical, a little medical exam with a, you know, this guy there with a stethoscope listening to the heart and so forth. And he said, well, you know, she definitely was not in that line. Um, but somehow she managed to get a number. I don't. I don't know how she managed to get a, a number in the, the men's division race. Uh, that women aren't, obviously aren't um, qualified to run. So um, that's why Jock Semple was so angry. Um, he said, "Oh, I saw, I saw Bobby Gibb, but I didn't stop her because she didn't have an illegal number. Um, you know, she hadn't cheated to get a number. That's what he said." And he he thought that it had been subterfuge, and I think he blamed her coach. I think her name, Arnie Miller, he blamed the coach. He said, well, Arnie Miller, I mean, he's a professional coach. Certainly he knows that women aren't allowed to run in men's division races. So I think he ended up blaming the coach for that, uh, which which well may be. I don't know. I don't know any of the details. But that was why Jock was so angry. He saw, He felt he'd been tricked. And um, he saw this number go by. He said he'd been tricked into giving this illegal number out. So he, he ran after her trying to grab the number. He was outraged at this. And then that's when, you know, the boyfriend shouldered him and all the publicity, and there was those photos. And uh, But that was all on the sports page. It wasn't like front page headlines. It wasn't, it was, it, I mean, everybody already knew a woman could run a marathon by then. It wasn't anything new. What was new was that Jock Semple was trying to get his number. That was what was, Jock Semple was actually then, <laughs> was the actual, what the photographer was actually following Jock Semple. And, um, and 
so that was that was a small little blip there in um in nineteen sixty seven and then I came back in nineteen sixty eight and since there was nowhere in sight and um all the bad feelings had disappeared and it was all light began with us five women running with no numbers in the women's division race. Actually, Sutsu was running in the women's division race. Um, she just happened to have had this illegal number in the men's division race. And then I didn't hear anything more about Sutsu or the number or anything for years until the 70s, until Switzer, um started organizing races for Avon. And then she started to use those photographs and promote um, her herself and her career um, by using those photographs as some sort of symbol of, you know, this is what men do to women. But it was totally erroneous because the, the men in 1966 had actually been very friendly and supportive uh, and, and, and not hostile at all towards women. And the other thing about that number is that if... Um, if there's an unsanctioned runner in a sanctioned road race, that race can lose its sanction. It could lose its accreditation, and that's what Jock was worried about. He had spent his whole life, I mean, the marathon was his baby, that, that's his life, and here it could, it was in risk of losing its accreditation because it was an unsanctioned runner in the race. No way. I mean, of course, he was outraged, and the uh, the guys were angry, too, because if the race lost its accreditation, then all the running times of all the men runners would have been invalidated. And so there's a tremendous amount of hostility towards Switzer and, you know, what she had done um, at the time, not because she's a woman, but because she threatened the accreditation of the Boston Marathon by having an illegal number and by being in a race that she wasn't qualified to run, that was the that's what happened. And it wasn't a big thing until the 70s. And then Twitter started to promote herself. She is a professional promoter, and more power to her. She's done a lot for women's running. It's wonderful. Um, but she used those photographs to um, promote her career. And it was that at that point, everybody started to think. And she misrepresented herself, actually. Um, as the first woman to run the Boston Marathon, or the first woman to run it officially, and and all this. Well, she was, of course, not an official runner, uh, and um, that's where the misconception came from. It came from her website, basically. That makes a lot of sense, actually, just to think about it, um, because you had gone by first, and for him not to stop you but to stop her, I had never thought about the number um, and having to go through the physical because I have friends that ran uh, some of the first ones and and I remember them telling me about the physical and I thought it was so funny at the time um, that they had to take physicals but for them to tell you that you couldn't enter for the like the physical liability it all kind of makes sense when you put the pieces together right 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 history has been a little bit rewritten shall we say and um (laughs) Now I think it's a good time to go back and, you know, tell it like it was. And that's one of the things I'm excited about this project is you guys get to yeah. tell the story in, in your own voice, and it's coming from you and, and your experiences. And I, I I love that. I love that it's going to definitely maybe help put history in perspective. Yeah, I love it too, you know. And 
Um, and I love, you know, being able to meet all these young women runners. I, I did another interview with a, a woman a few days ago, and just, you know, and halfway through, you know, said, well, you know, a lot of the reason I did this was for you guys. <laughs> and I just feel so happy when I see women running along um, strong and, and self-assured, and I think, wow, you know, that's not the way it, it was. And I'm definitely appreciative of everything that the women went through to get us to be able to run, you know, the 5,000, the 10,000, and the marathon and the Olympics. And I was reading that you sculpted the trophies for the first women's Olympic marathon trials in 1984. Oh, yeah, I did. I forgot about that. I did, yeah. And um, Joan Benoit won first one of her. She, she loves that sculpture. She She says that's the only sculpture she keeps out. And uh, only a trophy she keeps out is that sculpture. Yeah, I am a sculptor, among other things. And um, in fact, I'm actually now um, working on a sculpture of Joan Benoit that we want to put life-size along the marathon route. um, Wow, that would be an amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw her a couple months ago. I talked to her husband and... Um, we're gonna, I have already done the small sculpture of it. I, I've i done a lot of sculptures of runners and athletes and stuff and um, portrait busts and so that's one of the things I do. And um, the other thing I do is I work, uh, I actually work on ALS now. I work for the, I ended up working for the lab that I um, ran to raise money for. So um, I work on ALS. And I do sculpture, and of course I've written this book, and I'm going to write some more books too. I'm writing books, so um, um, yeah, I'm writing another book right now. Wow. So, um, yeah, so it would be great to have a full a life-size sculpture of jo- of Joan along the marathon route, maybe at Wellesley or something, like celebrating women's running. And somebody said. I was down in Ashland. They have a little park there, um, a, run, a marathon park in Ashland. I was down there a couple months ago, and they said, you know what you should sculpture? And I said, what? A sculpture of you jumping out of the bushes. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and I said, whoa, that's a thought. I haven't done that one yet, but, but I've, done, I've done a little one. I've got, I've got one of Joan Benoit about a foot high, 12 inches high, and, uh, and they're just trying to raise money to... Um, to get to, you know, the life-size one costs a lot of money because doing a bronze like this costs a lot of money. But if, you know, if a lot of people put in a, just a couple of dollars, they'd have enough money to do this one of Joan Benoit. So that, would that be, is what I'm, That would be awesome, huh? Yeah, that would be really great. That would be amazing. It's, it's just amazing um, just the connections with, you know, you sculpting the trophies there, and then if, if you got this, sculpture of Joni put on the course. And then I, I definitely think you should work on the one with you jumping out of the bushes there at the start. That would be that would be great. That would you, yeah. So I mean you, you tried to go to medical school, you went to law school, then you went you've been sculpting and painting and writing. You've definitely continued to stay busy and continue to stay you know, part of running in a way. I mean you're going back to the anniversary yeah. of your race and um right. 
it's been an amazing journey that you had, and I loved your – you're probably one of the first people to do the cross-country trip running. Uh, you know, now people run across the U.S. for all sorts of different things, but you might have been one of the first to do that. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, I was way out there. Far out. <laughs> that was neat. Because that's one of the things when I was running, I said, boy, if everybody could run and feel this good, how much happier the world would be and how much healthier and now everybody is. It's like they found it. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. Did you make any friendships through running or friendships that are still going um, oh, through your running? Oh, my God. I love everybody at the Boston Athletic Association. They're my second family. It's like a family reunion. Every time I go back there, everybody there, I just love them. And, um, you know, hundreds of people, hundreds of runners, and, of course, Nina Kusick and Laurel James and Joan Benoit and Bill Rogers. Bill Rogers and I were at his running store after the last marathon signing books and carrying on. And uh, I love them all. I mean, hundreds, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of you, Andy Barfoot. It just, it is really a family reunion when I go back there. People, you know, that I love dearly. Wow. That's amazing. Um, yeah. Is there, is there anything else that you'd like to add about the history of women's running or women's running now? Um, anything that you'd like to add to the interview? Um, yeah, I'm trying to think, like, where women need to go from here. Yeah. You know, where women need to go from here. And somehow there's two things that come to mind. And But the first is that how to integrate I mean, women now have careers and marriages if they're lucky, and um, they want to run, and they, and they want to have children. And I have to say, for me, having a child was the most amazing thing that ever happened. I mean, I love the whole thing. And I love being pregnant. Being, you know, giving birth was a little painful. But um, what a beautiful thing. I just had a such a blast being a mom and having so much fun with my kids that, I mean, that being a mother is a miraculous thing that women need to be more aware of. This is a miraculous, wonderful thing to be able to conceive life and to have a little, you know, living thing growing within you and a baby. It's a wonderful thing and to be able to integrate that into one's life um, is something that needs, I think, a little more work because women have a different life pattern than men and it's their educational years, their professional years, their athletic years, and their childbearing years all come at once. Mm-hmm. And, but I just want to say that women, they have time. You have time. You have time. You don't have to. You can have your children and then you can go to school or then, you know, you can go to college and have a couple of kids and then go back and get your Ph.D. or the, because you have time to do things in your 40s and your 50s and your 60s. And, you know, you don't have to fit into that little rigid time schedule. You, you can. You can do it. And I know a lot of women don't want to have kids, but for me, it was that, that was the most amazing thing I ever did was to, to have a kid and raise a kid. Wow. Not, not too many people say that anymore. 
Yeah, I know. That's why I wanted to say it. Yeah, that's great. Very cool. Well, Bobby, this this has been uh this has been a great interview. I I love the stories and, and you told it beautifully. Uh, it is really well told and you went chronologically in order. It was it was really great. Um, <laughs> I, I loved it. It was it was great, and especially your trip across the country and, and the different marathons. Each one of them were different that you ran at Boston. And I hope to see you. That would be great if you could be at the 2016 you know, 50th anniversary of the That would be great, yeah. That would be really fun. That would be cool. <laughs> Very cool. Well, uh, I really enjoyed talking with you, too. Well, thank you. And thank you for taking the time to do this. I'll keep everybody informed about when they're going to post it so that, so that you'll know. And, um, and hopefully Andy's book will come out and Women's Run will just get another, you know, kick in the butt and it'll be really fun. Yeah, it will it will be fun. It's gonna be great. I can I know it. Oh, thank you. Okay. Well uh, call, Bobby, call me anytime. Stay in touch, okay? Okay, well I definitely have yeah, 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 an email. email email me and stuff. That'd be great. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much. Take I look care. forward to it. Ready. Yeah. Bye. Yeah. Bye.